Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Diana Wiley. I am your host of Love, Lust, and Laughter, Dr. Carol Queen, my friend and colleague who has been on this program before and is always so welcome because she's so knowledgeable and just a wonderful person. And she's the staff sexologist at Good Vibrations, a national chain of sex toy stores. So since 1990, Dr. Carol has enjoyed a very unique platform to focus on sex education and women's pleasure. In two weeks uh, on the um, 24th, we're going to talk about sexual pleasure and vibrators because it is masturbation month. But today we're going to talk about the problems that are ahead, perhaps, because Roe versus Wade may be eliminated. Um, and so I welcome you, Carol. We're going to talk about sex education and how important that is. Hello, Carol. Hello, Dr. Diana. I am always so happy to have a chance to talk with you. And this, this feels especially important. I think anyone who is paying attention has uh, heard a lot of of takes and concerns about this issue, but uh, focusing on sex education through this lens, I think it's especially important, and I'm very much looking forward to our chat. Yeah, looking through uh, the lens of sex education, um, you know, we have known for years that uh, there are a lot of studies by the federal government and others that show that young people's sexual risk-taking is promoted by ignorance, not knowledge. And they and 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 sex education helps young people understand the consequences of sexual behavior and teaches more, oh, more mature sexual decision making. Uh, yeah, sex education, we gotta have it. Absolutely. And you know what what is so so challenging in the in it, when we center it with this question about abortion in Roe v. Wade. I mean, there are, there are several things to talk about, of course, but one of them is what you just said, the implications of it couldn't be more clear. More sex education would probably lead to the need for fewer abortions. And yes. the fact that the people who don't feel comfortable with abortion are not at the picket lines for sex education to me says a lot. I, I really think that those two things, for those who, who really are truly concerned about the issues, they have to go hand in hand. There should be nobody in this mix who doesn't think sex education is important, given what the studies have shown us. What the studies have shown us. And, and part of what the, uh, so we've got the social conservatives and the social liberals and the social conservatives uh, have a big, a whole, ha, they are really promoting abstinence only sex education. And, and what's pretty shocking is that since the 1990s, Congress has allotted more than 1 billion to abstinence only sex school education. And it, 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 it encourages young people to say no until their wedding nights. Well, follow-up studies have shown that there's a failure rate of 88% of kids who 
signed pledges swearing to remain virgins until marriage. Only 12% of those who took the virginity vows really seriously. 88% failure on, on abstinence only. And some percentage of that 12% are probably asexual young people anyway, who wouldn't be very likely to, to step outside the bounds of what they would prefer and not prefer. And you know, this is this is such a it's such an irony, Diana, because the idea that this is the safe kind of sex education for politicians to support. I mean, that makes sense to me. It's not a it's not a good look, in my opinion, but I, I can see why people would think, well, at least it'll be something. But the 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 problem, as I see it with abstinence only sex ed is threefold, at least one. It doesn't give information about how to stay safe or how to prevent pregnancy if abstinence fails, and abstinence can fail for a lot of reasons, including rape and abuse, yes, not in that young person's uh, power to change, even. And so, even if the even if the young person is uh, making a decision that will wind up in the abstinence fail, uh, it, it's it's not something that they will have been protected against because the whole point has been not to tell them about how to negotiate for or against sex. Because if you were negotiating in any way, it, you, you could potentially negotiate in all directions. The negotiation part isn't something that most young people in these programs are empowered with. And then there's the how, how bad it part of it is in so many contexts to make the kids feel bad for having sexual curiosity and desire in the first place, which is alienating, but also is, is hard on people's self-esteem. This business of if you have had sexual contact, you're like a dirty piece of gum on somebody's shoe. Who thought of that? That's sadistic and awful. Really? <laughs> and how do you get over that self-image if you get all the way to your wedding night and now you wanna be comfortable having sex with the person that you've chosen. Those folks often will have difficulties with their sex lives as I'm sure you've seen in your practice. I've because seen- Because they didn't learn. They didn't learn. Um, in my practice, uh, because I live in Seattle and we have Amazon here and Microsoft, I, have, I see a lot of uh, Indian couples who had arranged marriages, and it's just a tradition there that you don't have sex until marriage. And not only that, but you didn't actively choose your partner. There are so many cases of vaginismus and even erectile dysfunction on the wedding night uh, where penetration isn't even possible. And they just, they just so desperately need sex education I, in India, but we need it here too in, in the United States. And, um, the, oh, another problem is that we uh, we don't teach anything about uh, sexual pleasure. Um, I want to I want to back up though, because I, I want to ask you, Carol. You've you've lived in San Francisco a long time. Um, how long? Thirty five years or so. Yeah. Thirty five years. Okay. And um, you're I I know you're aware of our colleague uh, Michael Castleman. Yes. And his uh, recent book, Sizzling Sex for Life. And he's got some very interesting statistics. Um, 
now he he's lived in in San Francisco a, a long time. Um, I think more longer than you, maybe forty, maybe forty five years. Oh, I, definitely longer than me because uh, he was um, a friend of Good Vibrations from the very get go when Joni started the the business. Yes. I remember um, carrying his earlier book, the one on male sexuality. I remember uh, him coming to events. Yes, he's he's, yeah. been a, he's been an esteemed part of the community for a long time. For a long time. So what he, and and he's he's wonderful and I, I know him pretty well and, and he's been on the program too. Um, but what he says is that um, the idea um, that sex is dangerous, which is what uh, social security uh, conservatives uh, say it's dangerous. Well, and he says it certainly can be. He said, during the 1980s and 90s, my hometown, San Francisco, lost more than 20,000 residents to AIDS. And he says, including my letter carrier, barber, next door neighbors, uh, brother, and, and many, many. He said, for a while, it seemed every social event was a funeral. Yeah. Do you have some memories of, of that too? Because there, were, I, I lived in Palo Alto, south of there, but I wasn't in the, I was certainly aware, but not as aware of people living in the city might have been. What do, what do you remember of that time? Well, I do remember that time. That, that was really the reason that I moved to San Francisco, began to mm -hmm. pursue my doctorate at the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality. And mm -hmm. It was because I had been part of the LGBTQ plus community um, since my teenage years, and I, I desperately wanted to try to do something. And yes. my friends in Eugene, Oregon, where I'm from, were beginning to be taken by HIV, even in the early part of the 1980s. So, um, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I finished a year of grad school at the University of Oregon and said, I, I got to get to San Francisco. I got to try to do something. And I, I hear his recollection about funerals for sure. And, and immediately I began meeting gay and bisexual men and other people too, who were meaningful to me and important to me as I started to study sexology and lost a good many of them. Um, probably most most significant to me um, as I sort of stepped into my role, as I, as I grew into the role that I have now is Cynthia Slater, who founded the Society of Janus, the BDSM organization, mm -hmm. uh, and her dear friend, David Luria, who was one of my professors at the Institute and the, one of the founders of the Bisexual Center. So mm. people from all parts of the sexuality communities and outside of it too mm -hmm. were yes. being struck down by HIV and it was a it was an absolute crisis and part of what San Francisco needed to do was step up with information and one of the things when when you asked me what it was like in San Francisco in the 80s we were developing the San Francisco model of response to HIV AIDS, which was fully inclusive of the communities who were impacted by HIV AIDS, tried to speak their language, tried to meet them where they were, including in the bathhouses until those were closed. But still there were, were sex clubs and sexualized organizations that were yes. super important places for education and information. And now almost none of those young men and others had gotten good sex education that was inclusive of gay sex, especially in their growing up years. 
And so, you know, I, I, I feel like as we're having this discussion around a time of, of potential huge change in Roe v. Wade, this is going to be another question of do high schools graduate students who can take care of themselves in the face of the context socially. And that in those years, it was a virus that, that there was no treatment for yet or cure for at all. And now it's the question of whether people uh, can avoid pregnancy if they don't want it and choose it. Yes, yes. And let's just go back a little bit because in terms of sex education, uh, San Francisco, in response, you, you talked about old, old, older people getting more sex education, the gays and some of those, but also they, uh, the San Francisco instituted one of the nation's most comprehensive kind of no-nonsense sex education in grades five, six, and seven. And um, so the, these, these the sex education that at that time included a discussion of all contraceptives, big emphasis on condoms, big emphasis. And it, um, it also included um, guest speakers, including uh, young adult women who've had children as teens. And they minced, they, these guest speakers often minced no words about the magnitude of their mistakes. Yeah. And, um, but even so, uh, there was no education about pleasure, uh, about lovemaking without intercourse, you know, hand jobs, oral sex, you know. We used to call outer course. Outer course, uh -huh. yeah. We still do, I think, <laughs> call it outer course. Yeah. Um, when my daughter was uh, in high school and we were in Palo Alto, south of San Francisco, um, and let's see, she graduated in the late, uh, mid-1990s. And uh, so I used to talk with her and some of her friends about mutual masturbation, the, the ones that were in um, serious relationships rather than intercourse, penetrative sex. And they all giggled and everything, but it was a, an absolute solution. Plus we talked about other things too, but the, the, the message of most school education is that doing it is perilous. It's not gonna be for pleasure. They don't have that kind of education. And teens really, what interests them is how to get it on, don't you think? <laughs> I think I think regardless of whether somebody wants to have a particular kind of sex, when they're teenagers, they are beginning to be swimming in hormones, some mm -hmm. more than others, some earlier than others, of course. Yeah. They are, whether or not they're ready to have sex themselves or desirous of it even, they are in a social environment where sex is a primary curiosity for yes. almost everyone. And yes. when they get terrible sex education or none at all, the, what would an what would an enterprising young person of the internet age do? They would go and look for information online, mm -hmm. and uh, they would find 
today they would find great uh, resources like scarletine.com. Yes. You'd also find a ton of internet porn. And if nobody has talked to them about porn yet, they might make the mistake of thinking that it's documentary information as opposed to uh, sexy, exciting um, entertainment, maybe made for people older than they are, but but regardless of, of whether someone accesses porn before they're legally supposed to, turning to porn to answer questions about sex can only get you so far. And it doesn't, it's like, I like to say it's like, it's like watching car chase movies to learn about driver education. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> these are supposed to be entertaining. It's supposed to be exciting and there's a script and an and a photo editor and a director and special car drivers to make sure that it's uh, as gripping as they want it to be for you and the same is essentially true of porn so it's not sex education although i'm perfectly happy for people who have access to information about porn and, and and media literacy and are old enough to get it to have access to porn. I think I'm porn positive in that way. But yeah. I want I don't want anyone to think it's a substitute for good sex education because it isn't. It sure isn't and and so many get the wrong message. Uh, you mentioned Scarletine. There is a book uh, that uh, is written by um, Heather Karina, and she's the founder of Scarletine. And it's Michael Castleman thinks so. A lot of people think that this is this book written expressly for teens is head and shoulders above the rest. And it's called, and I'll put this in the show notes, S-E-X, the all you need to know sexuality guide to get you through your teens and 20s by Heather Karina, founder of Scarletine.com, which has provided accessible, accurate, inclusive, sex-positive sex and relationship information to young people since 1998. And full disclosure, my nonprofit, the Center for Sex and Culture, is Scarletine's fiscal sponsor. And we're so, oh, so honored to be able to, to serve that function for Heather and, and their their crew of wonderful volunteers. It's a, it's a fabulous group of people who care a lot, who make Scarletine what it is. And in this moment in time, if anything, I, you know, I'm, I can just imagine what's going on emotionally for that group of people. And there will be, there will be resources that they'll pull together at that, that they've already pulled together to be frank because in many states of this union it's almost as if scarletine it's almost as if roe v wade was already gone uh, but but thank goodness for scarletine and any of the pleasure positive sex education uh resources for young people because you're right so much of this information skips the pleasure and when they don't talk about the pleasure, it makes pleasure seem unimportant. It makes it seem as though pleasure isn't a goal, or at least not for everyone, if you see what I'm getting at there. Yes, and, yes. Uh, you know, the, 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 you know, we don't mention the clitoris in this sex education class, that, that all, of, all of it is problematic. Uh, young queer people 
often don't get what they need out of these these kinds of classes because they're not I'll, I'll use the term culturally appropriate and in, in, in thinking in terms of of queer folks as a particular culture. And of course, that's that's not 100 percent what everyone would agree that they are. But but I know that all heterosexual referencing um, information is not entirely culturally appropriate for them. So it's part of being sex positive, too, you know, that that we should have access to inclusive, appropriate sex education that that is relevant to our lives and remembering the opposite of sex positive is sex negative and that's that's really what we're up against here isn't it oh yes we we are up against so so much of this uh, i before we get into um some of the uh, abortion rights that are because i we think of abortion as health care and yes. and uh, and bodily autonomy is a human right. So before we do that, I want to go back to somebody that I really loved, and it was Dr. Sol S O L Gordon, and you probably remember him. Yes. Yeah, and I took his course, and it was sometime in the eighties, and um, he 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 was just great. Um, he talked. The, there were two terms that he popularized and uh this is so important for parents who are trying to give some sex education to their children to their teens and uh, one is uh the askable parent and uh this is the one who is more interested in educating asking sharing and understanding than in criticizing lecturing uh proving him or herself right it's the parent really who models openness rather than simply saying, you can talk to me anytime. You gotta model the openness. Askable parents can, can most efficiently teach their children sexual values and decision-making, uh, but they need to be askable. And, uh, and then also he taught about the teachable moment. It's an opportunity for uh, informal sex education that's presented by real life. And, um, you know, I have a memory of my mother doing this, and I couldn't have been older than about five years old. I'm walking along in a park with her, and I'm holding her hand, and a, a lady goes by us the other way, and she, I said, as, as she passed by, oh, mommy, look at that lady, she's very fat. And my mother said, no, she's pregnant. She's carrying a baby inside of her belly, her uterus. My mother was giving me five-year-old sex information then. She was, both my parents were very askable parents. I couldn't have had better history for, and they taught us sex education. And it was just, and in the 1950s, this was even more unusual. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, you know, when I was I, when I was part of San Francisco sex information's training staff, we talked mm -hmm. about we talked about talking to youth all the time, because at that time, Sfissi was one of the only places in the country where you could if you figured out its phone number, you could dial it up and there would be half the week there would be somebody there to answer any question that you asked and young people found out about this in San Francisco the kids passed the number of, from person to person and and we huh. we taught and were taught to 
answer a question in an age appropriate way. If a young person, and, and, and we would always say that if you could ask your parents about this, that they should, should do that and see what their parents had to say. Also knowing that there are plenty of kids out there who need answers to questions on a vital level, who can't ask parents, who don't have parents to ask. I mean, this, you know, this opens the door to, um, to thinking about the kind of childhood that doesn't have the kind of protection, much less pleasure positive sex education that we would want for all kids. And so part of the, part of the, the issue was to remember that if somebody asks a question who's very young, they don't want to hear an adult level answer. That's not especially useful to them in most cases. Mm-hmm. They want to know what it is their little kid friends are talking about. Yeah. And, you know, thank goodness there, there were a very few books in those days uh, that, that um, a parent who was informed about them could get to share with your kids to, to help spark those kinds of conversations. There are more now. I just got an email uh, from our friend Corey Silverberg, who's newest of several books uh, about teaching kids and answering their questions is coming out this month, which is great. But I've just got to say there's there's in in thinking about what people need to know about in the classes that Good Vibrations offers over and over and over again, we've done classes for parents about talking to kids and they are much less well attended than other classes. And that breaks my heart because it doesn't mean to me that all the parents out there already are cool talking to their kids. It means that for some, that's just too much of a stretch and they can't even get themselves to a class. They're so concerned about it. I really want, I really want to encourage all parents to remember that even if they don't know how to talk about this in full, answer the questions in little bites. And if you don't know the answer, say, I don't know the answer to that, honey, but we can look it up. We can find out what the answer is. It's not one conversation, as my colleague Shar, who helped me write the Sex and Pleasure book said, it's many conversations over many Many conversations. It has to be. yeah, the um, <clears throat> I, I'm thinking about a study that was uh, uh, per, um, published in the Journal of Sex Research, which is prestigious, and it said that the likelihood that adolescents will have intercourse decreases as the number of sexual topics they discuss with their parents increases. And this study was repeated by an entirely different researchers the following year with the same results. And and isn't that isn't that counterintuitive based yeah. on you know the, the 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 kids get too much information anti sex ed crowd isn't that isn't that an interesting finding that you know I I think we have to we have to push back on this idea that talking to young people about sexuality just fires them up. We have to push back on that. It, it, the research doesn't show that. That's right. And I think, uh, I think as a parent, uh, wanting to give some sex education to your, to your teens or even younger, because even so, Dr. Dr. Gordon pointed out, 
what you just pointed out that it isn't just one conversation it's many over time and being the being the askable parent is important but your most important resources really are a few dependable books honesty and i think a sense of humor too i think a parent can listen patiently and creatively to their uh, and and you know if you're listening really well you might find out the concerns or maybe the misconceptions that are behind your teen's questions. Yes. And it's always, I, I've, I've, I've mentioned this to clients who wanted to have the talk uh, and, and it's okay to say to your kid, my dad never discussed these things with me so I'm a little bit embarrassed, but okay, let's give it a try. <laughs> and, or they, they can even have someone else in the family you know, maybe an uncle, a neighbor, ask her, answer the, the questions. I've been recruited, going back a few years, by some of my good friends to uh, have a talk with their a teenage, a teenager. Yes. <laughs> and uh, over lunch out. And it was really a very nice way with the mother. I'm thinking this happened a couple or three times. With the mother, the teen, and me, and sex education in a quiet place in the restaurant <laughs> and uh it 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 does it does work but sex education i think you've got to impart accurate information you've got to normalize the kids sexual thoughts feelings and curiosity that's so important because they think they're you know they're all alone and so you have to normalize it and um I think you have to look at sexual decision-making and the consequences of various sexual decisions. That's what Dr. Gordon did, Dr. Sol Gordon. He, he, uh, he had parents rehearse with their teens. Um, so, you know, for example, um, what would you do if, to a, a teenage girl, what would you do if your boyfriend pressured you for sex? And, um, and you can, one answer, I still remember this from his book, one answer you, you could give it to your, if you're rehearsing this with your teenage girl, is if he, if he really loved you, he wouldn't pressure you for intercourse, for sex, if he really loved you. And there are all these other things you can do, and then you can talk about that, uh, kissing and caressing and, and maybe a hand job, maybe mutual masturbation. But that's a tough sell for a lot of parents because then they, they think that uh, you're giving them the green light to have it. But we've got to talk about pleasure of sex instead of that it'll kill you. And even if the, the, the ultimate message that we want to convey mm -hmm. is we would rather you wait to have this experience mm -hmm. telling them why yeah and what our concerns are maybe in some cases what our own experiences have been although that's a that may be a boundary for some parents and mm -hmm. yeah. and may not be comfortable for every family to share like that but in some in some families it it is comfortable to have that level of of openness and i i just think that that the more you arm 
your young person with the kind of values you're attempting to to promulgate for them, the more uh, your message will resonate with them. If your message is coming from a place of misinformation, you're informing your young person that you haven't thought through in the same way that they're thinking it through. That's useful too. But you know, this idea that, that you would be recruited to help someone or sort of facilitate somebody's um, information journey. I th- I just find that charming. I wish that. Oh, really? <laughs> I almost, yes. I almost wish that there was like a, like a, a, a professional category of people who, who did this in, in, you know, you could always take a kid to the doctor or to a therapist even and have a session with them, but that, you know, that's rather heavy going out to lunch. That's another, that's another matter altogether. And it made me think of my friend, Alex Liu, who wrote, who made a movie called A Sexplanation, which is this charming documentary about this sort of discussion and what people get out of sex ed and what they what they wish they hadn't heard you know the sort of the repressive and sex negative kinds of things the things that that they didn't learn that that they really did need to learn i it's it's charming and it's very hard hitting all at the same time so maybe I can I can send you over that information and you can include it. In the I show. would I would love that. Thank you, Carol. I think people would find it very interesting and and uh, it's a, it's a great watch. Yeah, and 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 let's talk about at the other end of the spectrum, sex education that simply teaches just say no to sex is really quite unrealistic and very ineffective. Um, this approach is just is simply not enough for kids in situations that could be complicated by alcohol and peer pressure or the belief that they are in love. And so I think learning communication skills enhances the kids' self-respect if they can learn to how to negotiate. Learning Yes. I'm so sorry. And I am so concerned about the conservative kids who get this message who then are supposed to flip a switch on their wedding night. It doesn't work like that. It does not. Um, You know, I, (laughs) way back when, I I remained, it was partly the time, but I actually remained a virgin until I was 22 years old. I went all through college and everything, but I knew in my head, I mean, I was doing other things too and, and probably making some young men very frustrated, but (laughs) <laughs> um, in fact, I remember several, oh, really? You're still a virgin? You know, I, I sent you, I sent you my Cosmo piece. I was, uh, featured in Cosmopolitan magazine in 1967. <laughs> and, um, uh, I, I was running down the beach and holding the hand of my boyfriend and the inset showed me teaching school in, uh, where I taught. And it was uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth grades language arts. And, but we also did some sex ed. We took all the kids to see Hawaii, the movie. Uh-huh. With, uh huh. Julie Andrews and Max Van Sydow. I mean, this is 1964, the, the, the movie. We, we saw it a couple of years later. But um, so the kids, I went with all the girls after the movie, and uh, a, a doctor went with all the boys. and. And they, we had a little sex education because on the ship coming over, 
in in this, you know, this uh, movie Hawaii was based on Herman Melville's book, Hawaii. Yeah. On the ship coming over, these missionaries didn't have much room and they were seasick. And Julie Andrews' character was married to the Max Van Sydow preacher. And they managed to, to get into a little bunk very close. And one of my students, fifth grader, said, Miss Steer, Miss Steer, how did they manage to make a baby? And, and they're just in that little bunk. And I said, well, when... <laughs> yeah, he wanted the specifics. <laughs> so I, I, I explained it. And um, that's what even if the, the kids just want good information yeah. and given by somebody who's who's uh, not embarrassed. Anyway, running down the beach in Hawaii in 1967, um, <laughs> things were very different then. And uh, and I I knew that I wanted to wait because I had enough experience to know that I really wanted my first penetrative sexual experience to be good. Well, it wasn't great, but I just knew enough already that it, it was with somebody I cared about. We had privacy. I was house sitting a beautiful home for the summer. And uh, it just, everything fell into place. And I knew, and of course we used, I was on birth control. He used a condom. It just, it was a nice experience, not great. And I was old enough to know that it would get better. And I had enough sex information to know that it would get better. But think about all the kids that don't have that information. That's right. And they make bad decisions as a result of it. Now we've got to get into the whole uh, abortion thing because uh, this is a big concern for lots of people. Um, the anti-abortion laws have um, wide reaching public health, economic and social consequences. And um, this is pretty interesting. People who are denied abortions experience increases in, this is all based on studies, increases in household poverty, mm -hmm. elevated levels of anxiety, um, ongoing contact with violent partners and their existing children experience developmental consequences. And here's the, the really shocking thing. This decision is also deadly, deadly because the research asserts that overturning Roe could lead to a 21% increase in pregnancy related deaths and, and you and we, i were talking about ectopic did i pronounce that right ectopic yes. pregnancies go on about that because well first I, what i wanted to say um, yeah. to the the increase in death is that the united states is currently not on the top of the list for healthy outcomes for pregnant people this is all we are already not one of the most safe countries in the world to be pregnant and have a child. This is partly due to racial disparity. It has to do yes. with poverty. It has to do with a lot of different things, access to access to good health care, lots and lots of things. But we're we're not starting out at the at the front of the race to yeah. begin with. And 
I was just mentioning to you earlier on that I saw a, a really powerful, good um, tweet thread this morning uh, by a person who uh, works in the medical field telling the story of uh, a person who had tested positive on a pregnancy test at home, uh, had an IUD in, so shouldn't have gotten pregnant, but did, uh-huh. and was having a, an extremely elevated heart rate and blood pressure crashing. And apparently if you go to a medical professional, they check you right away for an ectopic pregnancy. An ectopic pregnancy is when the fetus doesn't embed in the uterus where it's supposed to, but it goes outside of the uterus somewhere, sometimes at the very opening of the uterus, I understand an ectopic pregnancy could const- occur, but more usually it goes outside the uterus and up the fallopian tubes yes. and either embeds either inside one or outside in, in, the, in the body cavity. And it is uh, the, the fetus can't survive under those circumstances. Uh, and too often it's a life-threatening or fatal experience for the person who's pregnant. So it's, this is only one of the situations that can be dangerous medically, but it's a medical emergency. And some of the, some of the politicians who have been um, putting forward anti-abortion legislation already in, in the states um, are suggesting that, that an, a doctor can move the ectopic pregnancy and so that it can finish growing in a normal way and be a safe pregnancy. The technology to do that doesn't exist. It's, it's, a, it's a fantasy land that many yeah. of these anti-abortion politicians and of course the, the people around them who, who they are serving, like, you know, there, there, are, there are religious communities, not all religious communities are anti-abortion, but we know that some are. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, some of their voters who are influenced in anti-abortion directions for all kinds of reasons, the politicians aren't aren't even, the politicians don't have good sex education either. They're not uh, proposing laws that are even realistic, much less that take into account these dire uh, outcomes, including the economic ones. Like which politician in this country wants families' economic outcome to be worse? How how do you get votes for that? I don't even I don't even understand that part. And it's it's one thing to have beliefs and values. I I that that's that that's fine. We all have beliefs and values. It's another thing to act on those beliefs and values when they're directly in opposition to the real lived experience and the science that helps us understand what kinds of negative outcomes there can be. And, and there will be, there will be many, there will be a a community of people who try to step up and help, but there will be people who fall through the cracks if this Roe v. Wade overturn happens. And it's, it's, it's shocking and it's tragic and it's really infuriating. Very infuriating. And it turns out that there is a long history of criminalizing bodily autonomy, especially for Black 
indigenous, migrant, disabled, working class, and trans people. Yeah. And sex workers. And, and I shouldn't, I, of course, and sex workers. Um, can you address that a bit? You know, bodily autonomy in, in the late 20th and early 21st centuries have, has, has, seemed, has seemed like such a no-brainer to so many people with, yeah. with so many cultural changes happening. Roe v. Wade, access to contraception, um, a, a little bit more sex positivity, and a little less slut shaming. Those those things are not done deals, but 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 it it had seemed as though they were moving in the right direction in general. Um, the LGBTQ community, there there have been many many opportunities for us to see what a, a more sexually diverse and free world might look like, at least in subcultural places like, you know, my town, San Francisco, there's, there's been a robust series of communities of people who at different times in history could not have existed. And we could be looking at a time when some of those communities are no longer supported and, and cannot feel safe. But having said that, we got to remember that there have been communities of people in the United States in the late 20th and early 21st centuries who didn't have that level of autonomy and protection to begin with because of systemic racism, because of disparities around access to information and, and services and medical services, um, people who um, already had lived difficult lives as kids, um, carrying that trauma into adulthood, the adverse childhood experiences theories that have, have been so interesting to, to look at. And those things implicated around racism and about poverty and, and all of these, and child abuse, all of this stuff is, is mixed up together. And all of the problematic challenges, the places that we hadn't, we hadn't climbed the mountain yet fully to quote Dr. King or to misquote Dr. King. Uh, we aren't, we aren't in a place where we can protect everyone even with Roe v. Wade. And without it, an enormous uh, tool for, for helping move us to the level where we have bodily autonomy will be gone for many people will be fraught for others will be financially inaccessible for more it's just it's a way to to make the entire society more vulnerable to yeah. problematic outcomes problematic outcomes and there's some interesting history here that that the the um original 19th century laws that they criminalized abortion were intended to ensure demographic stability and dominance of white Anglo-Saxons. Yep. And that I think, I mean, we've got, <laughs> we've got, a, 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 especially um, states in the South, are, those are the ones that are 
really promoting this anti-abortion. And, uh, and, and I think that states like Mississippi and uh, are, you know, there's a lot of racism going on still. Yeah. And, and, and of course, you know, here we are, we're, we're a couple of white women who, who have, I hope, been on the right side of of the activism in the and the you know how we vote how we how we treat people out in the world but but i want to encourage all of your listeners to 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 turn their ears also to the people who are living in those states in these circumstances fighting already to keep any like one clinic open any level of access available uh, at organizations like Sister Song. Um, there's, there are so many important organizations doing good work. And, and I, want, I want people who are hearing us say these things to, to open their heart and their ears to the people on the ground too. I think that's important. I think it's so important. I don't know. I should know, but I don't know about Sister's Song as a resource. Can you tell tell us about that? Well, it, it, Sister Song is a is a, a group of women who who developed um, out of the the needs of women in the South. Um, uh, many of them are African American. Uh, yeah. It's a mixed. It's it's a mixed organization, but but I think that that is the community out of which um, the the primary activism grew and much of the primary need was seen. And I'll get some I'll get some info for you to share in the in the notes and a couple of other um, a couple of other of the kinds of uh, of pro choice activist entities that people might want to know about. And, you know, I, I, just, I think I just said pro-choice. I mean, I, I've, I've heard people say recently, and I, I really think I agree. I've been saying pro-choice, you know, for decades now, many yeah, of right. have, have adopted that language, but um, it, it, it does sort of put a little bit of a, um, a, a, a cover over the real language and and you know people saying pro-life it's 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 not pro-life to not treat someone who has an ectopic pregnancy it's not pro-life to force somebody to bear a child against their will it's there 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 are so many things that that we can dig down into this language and understand that this has been part of the challenge in some ways. I mean, it, the, the idea that it's revolutionary or radical sounding to say that abortion is healthcare. Well, if your life is threatened by pregnancy, it most certainly is. If the trajectory of the rest of your life is gonna be threatened by pregnancy, you know, what are we saying when we're telling those people that they can't access abortion? We're saying, we don't care about your lives. We don't care about the outcomes for your children, your family, your own health, your economic vitality, your ability to live reasonably well in this world. It's, it's, such, a, it's such a power struggle. It really is a, a power struggle society-wide and power struggle. Yeah, and then we we know that people that have the means 
who have more money can go out of state to get these abortion services. Or zip up to Canada. Or go zip to up Europe. to Canada. Good yeah. good. I, I love Canada. My daughter lives there and is as a Canadian citizen. She actually got her Canadian citizenship with her Canadian husband and my grandsons live there. They're just so much more open. And I know I was talking to my daughter just, I think, a couple of days ago, and she was so concerned about the the children. I mean, nobody talks about the children that are born. Right. They're unwanted. That's right. And then the whole, the poverty thing, and, and many of these mothers already have one or two children, and they don't want a third. They can't, they can't support a third. Hmm. It's just, it, it infuriates me, and it's so... Sh- limited thinking they're not thinking these lawmakers these power hungry people <laughs> i'm slapping a lot of labels on them but that's it's about power and i think once the gop realized that if they, they could get the christian right behind them then they'd have more power and they did <laughs> and and this is a this is a a 40 or 50 year process. This is, yes. you know, whatever you, you, you probably remember that my earlier degree is in sociology and there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of sociology going on right now in, in wow. our, in our, uh, in our country and our polity, there's an awful lot going on, including, including people pivoting to uh, things that will help them get elected, including, um, you know, propaganda organs that are confusing wow. people as to um, what abortion is and what happens around it. You know, the the the, the anti-abortion folks have. I'm going to put quotes around the word science that uh, because it's not correct science, but but. Right. They'll have they'll have a way of talking about um, how people will be better off not having access to abortion. I I you know pray to whatever gods may be that people will understand what really is happening to to their neighbors, to the people that they you know coexist in these states and this whole country with, because. There's going to be, as there was before Roe, a need to deal with the fallout of people who need abortions not being able to get them. With, you know, I I I hope that 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 this is a false alarm, but I don't think it's remotely sensible to believe that it is one. I think we have to assume that this is a change that's coming it might be temporary but it might take a long time to reverse the damage that's going to be done and i i hope all your listeners are registered to vote i hope they are thoughtful Mm -hmm. about exactly the the big picture because the big picture is truly big and it's is really quite frightening now it's very frightening and um I think that this has been an important conversation for us to have um, because we really, um, you know, our bodily autonomy is a human right. 
And the bottom line is abortion is essential health care. And I think we're committed, you and I are committed, many are committed to preserving this right for all pregnant capable individuals. We've got to do it. Uh, I mean, I remember uh, be, before 1973 and, and Roe versus Wade, and, and, and there were women who were dying in back alley uh, abortions. And uh, I had a, a really close friend. I've known him since he was in kindergarten. And we had a, a romance late many years later in our 20s. But he um, became an inhibited ejaculator uh, even as a young man, because of the trauma when he took his girlfriend uh, to a, to get an abortion, and it, it was before Roe versus Wade, and it was a kind of a back alley thing, but he was so traumatized by that, he he developed um, an, ability, and an inability to ejaculate when he wanted, because to ejaculate is to impregnate. So even men have <laughs> after yeah. effects. You know? Oh, absolutely men will have after effects. We haven't even talked about the, the, the potential other um, um, challenges to bodily autonomy that might come hard and fast after a row reversal, but, but you don't have to go very far on the internet to find worried think pieces about same-sex marriage and sodomy laws and uh, interracial marriage and uh, ability to access contraception and lots of things. And, you know, we are, we're human beings with diversity and, and so many options for, for growth and ability to change and develop and, this many people haven't thought all the way through how much this might step on some of the kinds of progress that I think we still need to be devoted to. So I'm glad we had a chance to talk about this, Diana. I, I am think it's, too. it's so obvious that I'm a little, I'm a little all up in it. And I yeah. think, I think we all can think of reasons if we stop and think to, um, be worried about this and, and to act, to vote, to protest, to act. Act, to act. And uh, people can, um, I'll, I'll put in the show notes how people can reach you. Uh, and you're going to be back. I'm so pleased in two weeks on the 24th of May. And Good Vibrations has said that May is masturbation month. So we're going to talk nice shift here. We're going to talk about sex toys and masturbation and what a difference that can make. Um, and it's a fine contraceptive too, when you get right down to it. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. It absolutely is. I mean, I mean, that's, that's a part of sex education that we really need to reinforce to, uh, to kids, to teenagers that yeah. you can do Lots of things without intercourse. Lots and lots of things. And of okay. course, that's what Dr. Elders got in trouble for. We'll talk more about that. Oh, absolutely. And yes, and we, we yes, she did. And we are out of time now. We got to wrap. Um, 
Thank you everybody for listening. Mostly I wanna thank Dr. Carol Queen once again. You have so much good information and you're so articulate and I just love doing shows with you. Thank, thank you, you, Dr. Carol Queen. Thank you, Diana. You're welcome. Okay, everybody, tune in in two weeks. I'll be back with Dr. Carol. We're going to talk masturbation. That's always fun.